Grab your copy of the Word. Go with me to Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, continuing this teaching series through church membership, church leadership. Uh, kind of a different um, focus than what we've been looking at the past few weeks. And this morning we're looking from Ephesians 2 at the key to a healthy church. The key to a healthy church. Bottom line, the key to a healthy church is to have healthy church members. This isn't rocket science. This isn't incredibly complicated. Uh, the key to a healthy church is to have healthy church members. And the healthy church member is first a Christian. The best church members are redeemed church members. So hopefully we've picked up on that theme, that repetition through our teaching over the past few weeks, especially on church membership specifically. And so as before we look at the text, the first question we have to ask ourselves, well, I'll ask you, we're not asking one another, I'll ask you, are you redeemed? Do you know Christ? Have you repented of your sin and placed faith in Christ? In essence, the key to a healthy church is the gospel and redeemed folks who really actually believe and hold to the gospel. And so this morning we're going to look at a text, Ephesians 2, that while it certainly addresses the church um, in general, the church at Ephesus, uh, is not necessarily a church-specific text. It's not giving us instruction about membership. It's not giving us instruction about leadership like some of the other passages that we've studied over the past few weeks. However, the truth that rises from Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 22, really, the truth really does help us to understand what it means to be a healthy church member, what it even means for us to have as Redeemer Church, healthy church membership. What, it, what does that look like? And so we'll read the text and then back up and, and break apart the text and uh, trust that by the Holy Spirit, God will speak to us through his word. Ephesians 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that, at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached to you who are far off, and peace to those who are near. Preached peace to you that, that were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, our confession is that we need the truth of your word this morning. And Lord, unless we see what your word's teaching us, Lord, we're subject to opinions and perspectives and experiences. Father, help us to settle hard and fast on the truth. Help us to see what a healthy church member is. Help us to see what healthy church membership is grounded upon. And Lord, guard us against pushing toward 
things like structure and organization without missing the essence of the gospel along the way. So, Father, by your grace, help us to Helps to infuse the gospel into all aspects of the life here at Redeemer. Lord, do it for your glory, for your name's sake. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Three truths from verses 11 through 22 that help us to understand uh, what a healthy church member is. And, and these, are, these are constant rhythms that as Christians... So Paul is writing to Christians, okay? This is not an evangelistic text per se. He's writing to the church giving instruction to the church at Ephesus. And so we're going to obviously preach this to the church. And so there's an assumption, although we'll push in a little further uh, in, in under the second point, but there's an assumption here that we're speaking to brothers and sisters. We're speaking to Christians. All right? If you're not a Christian, we invite you to listen into our conversation. Right? And we trust by God's grace that by the power of the Word, the Holy Spirit, God will make you new today. That is our hope. That's our desire. So first truth is we need to remember who we were before Christ. We need to remember who we were before Christ. So verse 11, Paul says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So he begins, obviously, with a continuous thought that has really started with the beginning of chapter 1. But the language of verse 11 ties it directly to the previous text in verses 1 through 10, where Paul is talking about salvation by grace alone through faith alone. He he does the same. He's basically doing the same thing twice. In verses 1 through 10, he reminds the church at Ephesus who they were before Christ, and you were dead in trespasses and sins, and on and on and on. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, made us alive together with Christ. And then goes on to say, for, grace, for by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one can boast. Verse 10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, verse 11, remember, in light of you knowing God's grace, remember who you were before Christ. And so Paul uses the word remember here twice in verses 11 and 12, and he's obviously calling the Ephesian church back to their former state, their life or maybe even lack of life before Christ. And he points out six realities that we need to remember about who we were before Christ. The first reality is that we were outsiders. He says, you were Gentiles in the flesh, verse 11, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. We were, we were outsiders. We were not ethnic Jews. We were outside that Jewish covenant. And when you see there in, in verse 11, the circumcision, the, I mean, the uncircumcision is in quotes. Uh, it's a term of derision. Like, this is not, oh, you're of the uncircumcision. No, it was like it was it was putting down on someone outside of the ethnic group of, of Jews, the, the Israelites, those who are outside of th- this this covenant. The Jews would refer to them as the uh, the uncircumcision, pointing out clearly that the Gentiles, those outside of the Jewish life, were outsiders. The language went both ways, actually: the Jew to the Gentile and the Gentile to the Jews. They. The, the Gentiles had a way of referring to the Jews, and the Jews had their way of referring to the Gentiles. But before Christ, we are outsiders. We are Gentiles in the flesh. Secondly, we are separated. It goes on in verse 12 and says, Remember that you were at that time separated from 
Christ separated, meaning without, apart from, no access to the Messiah is what he's saying here. You are separated from Christ. So we're outsiders, we're separated. Thirdly, we are aliens. He goes on, verse 12, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. The word alienated here could be translated, you are a foreigner, you are excluded from, you are estranged from. Colossians 1.21, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, so you're outsiders, you're separated, you're aliens, like it's kind of getting depressing, right? Like we're hearing all of this, but we're remembering, for those of us who are in Christ, we're remembering who we were before Christ, right? So we were outsiders, we're separated, we're aliens. Fourthly, we were strangers, moving on in verse 12, and we're strangers to the covenants of promise. We're foreigners, we're aliens, we're outsiders, we're strangers to the covenants of promise and those covenants there being the covenant of Abraham, the covenant of Moses, the covenant of David, that the common theme through the Old Testament that all was pointing to the ultimate covenant that's going to be made new in Christ. And so these covenants of promise he's referring to here in verse 12 began in Genesis 12 with God's unconditional promise to Abraham where he says, I will, I will. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And you, all the families of the earth, will be blessed. Israel was God's covenant people. And Paul is telling, reminding the church at Ephesus, hey, you were strangers to that covenant. You were not, you were not on the inside track to that covenant. Now, let's be clear here. The, uh, the Jews, um, though being part of that covenant, did not necessarily guarantee their uh, transition over into the new covenant. Right? That's a whole different conversation, especially in the Gospels where you see Jesus interacting with all the Pharisees and all of the challenges they had there. So we need to remember who we were before Christ. We were outsiders. We were separated. We were aliens. We were strangers. Number five, we were hopeless. Verse 12, he goes on and says, You're strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope. Why are we hopeless without Christ? Well, we had no hope because we did not have freedom from sin. We, before Christ, were slaves to sin. Before Christ, we were slaves to sin. Sin was our master. We were in bondage with no hope of escaping that bondage in and of ourselves. Because as dead people, we were slaves to our taskmaster. And our brutal taskmaster was sin. We were hopeless. Romans six seventeen. We were once slaves of sin, but we have become obedient by the truth of the gospel. So, ho- hopeless. Outsiders, separated, aliens, strangers, hopeless. And then, number six, we were condemned. We were without God in this world. Without God in the world. Now, to be clear here, especially in the context of Ephesus, they had plenty of gods. And those who are without Christ, even in our day, we have plenty of gods. In America, we don't have, like, typically, we don't have icons. We don't have, like, uh, what am I, statues, like something that we're going to come around and worship, typically. But we have gods, right? Outside of Christ, we have gods. It could be pursuit of money. It could be power. It could be manipulation. It could be fame. It could be fill in the blank. We have these gods. And therefore, we're without God in this world. We were prisoners to the domain of darkness. We were, Romans chapter 5, not just in sin, but in sin we were enemies of God. We'll talk about that more in just a second. We were not just disobedient, but we were enemies. We weren't anywhere close to being friends with God. We were by nature children of wrath, going back into Ephesians chapter 2, the first part. 
Romans chapter 1, by nature children of wrath. We fall short of God's standard, Romans 3.23. We were, in short, condemned without hope, outsiders with no hope of gaining access to the inside. Now, who is he talking about here? Who is he referring to in verses 11 and 12? Well, in context, he's referring to the church at Ephesus, but he's talking to Christians. He's talking to Christians, and he's telling them, remember this. Remember who you were before Christ. Remember, remember. Verse 11, remember. Verse 12, remember. We should never forget our sin, even though we are forgiven for that sin. We must remember what or who we were before God's grace, God's love, His holiness, and His justice invaded our lives. And here's why it's necessary for us to remember. Here's why Paul comes to the church at Ephesus and says, hey, don't forget who you were when God saved you. Don't forget what track you were on when God snatched you from the throes of death. Well, we have to remember that we never graduate from the gospel. Our sin necessitates the gospel, right? Our sin makes the gospel necessary, and we never graduate from this gospel. And so that's why a healthy exercise for us as Christians is to remember who we were before Christ. It's also good for us to remember the depths of our depravity. So before Christ, any good in us was only good because God graciously restrained the complete evil that we were actually capable of doing. Right? You get that? Like Before Christ, you might have been a good old boy, and that's only because God let you be a good old boy. Left to ourselves, without the restraining effort of God, we are savages. We were completely depraved. We were full of sin. We were motivated by sin. We were disobedient because we had to be disobedient, and we were disobedient because we wanted to be disobedient. Absolute, total depravity before Christ. And so we remember the depths of our depravity. We remember we never graduate from the gospel. Also, we remember and reflect on what we actually deserve because of that sin. And it's the unhindered wrath of God. What you and I deserve because of that sin is the absolute outpouring of God's wrath on our lives. And what does this remembering exercise do for us as we think about our conversations centered around the church? This remembering exercise really, really pushes back against our pride. Right? What what is the one theme that causes churches to fall apart, to hit train wrecks, to derail? It's rooted in pride right it might be symptomatic in in other ways but the root of the issue is that of pride and remembering who we were before christ pushes back against our pride because we realize before christ and i was dead i was hopeless i was outside i was condemned i was an object of wrath and justifiably an object of wrath so like god didn't save me thinking i'm gonna be a game changer when he brings me onto his team Right? He didn't look at me and say, man, if we can get Richard on our team, this thing is really going to start happening. No, he looked at me in his grace and said, we're going to save Richard. And we're going to bring him out of the depths of his depravity. And we're going to take the dead man who is living and is totally satisfied in his sin and rebellion and enmity towards me. And we're going to make him my son. And he's going to become our friend. And m- my role in that is bringing sin to the table. Right? My role in that is bringing sin to the table. This pushes back against our pride. Jesus told a parable in Luke chapter 8. Just listen. He 
talking about the tax collector and the Pharisee. He says, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So already, like in the context when Jesus is speaking, there's inherent value or disdain toward these two fellows, right? The Pharisee is seen as respectable in the community. The tax collector, not so much at all. The Pharisee, standing by himself, which is an indication of his personal value on himself, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men extortioners unjust adulterers are even like this tax collector i fast twice a week i give tithes of all that i get so you get the picture right this pharisee is praying and he's praying so everyone can hear him and in his pride he is exalting himself above this tax collector that he actually refers to in the story that jesus is telling some of his Credentials, I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. What's Jesus' evaluation of these two men? Well, he says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, the tax collector, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. God is the one who does the work of exaltation, right? Our path is that of humility. And one of the primary ways that we pursue humility in life is to remind ourselves, to remember who we were before Christ, right? That there's this subtle temptation that creeps into the Christian's life that causes us to think that we actually kind of become a big deal in God's economy once he saves us. Right? Like maybe, it's, maybe it could be because we preach or we serve in various capacities or we, we're really good at one-on-one conversation with people or we give a lot of money toward the Lord's work. There's this, there's this subtle, just false theology that kind of starts creeping in that tells us, you've got it going on. And the Lord's really happy you're on His team. And that's pride just rooting up within us. And for us to combat that pride with, man, who I was before Christ. And the, the real me that God saved. <laughs> the real me that God redeemed. Helps me to remember the depth from which God drew me. And I don't care if you were four when you were saved or you were 40 when you were saved. You know if you're saved the depth from which God brought you. And so, number one, we need to remember who we were before Christ. Number two, we need to realize what God has done for us in Christ. We need to realize what God has done for us in Christ. Verse 13. So we we get the picture of who we were before Christ. Verse 13. Good word here, but now. Right? This is who you were, but now. Same, similar echo of Ephesians 2, 4. But God, being rich in mercy. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You see, it's good for us to remember who we were before Christ, but we can't stay in those memories. We have to be careful here. If we stay in those memories, we'll enter into a constant state of paralysis. We'll become unable to grasp and to glory in what God has done for us in Christ. We'll be unable to walk in freedom, free from sin, free from bondage. But when we do remember... We realize the great length that God took in redeeming us as His sons and daughters. But if we're constantly in turmoil over this sin that God has already forgiven, God has already accounted for in the finished work of Christ, then we will stay paralyzed in that position. And so that's why Paul goes on and he says, hey, but it's good to remember, 
but realize what God has done for you in Christ. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. When we remember our sin, when we reflect on our sin, we are reminded of the infinite depth of God's grace, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Like when we think about the sin that we brought to the table when God saved us, it helps us to realize just how vast this well of grace really is in Christ. We had nothing before Christ, and in Christ we have nothing but Christ. I'll say that again. It's a quote from another brother. We had nothing before Christ, and in Christ we have nothing but Christ. This is all about Christ. We need to realize what God has done for us in Christ. And so verse 13, Paul says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So verses 11 and 12, you were, but now. What was true of you is no longer true of you. Church, be encouraged by this. My goodness, if we were like one of those resounding amening kind of churches, that would have been a hearty spot for one right there. Amen. <laughs> what was true of you, verses 11 and 12, is no longer true of you if you are in Christ. This is a present statement. Verses 11 and 12 was past, remember, remember, but now in Christ you who were once far off, you have been brought near. It happened and it's going to stay, is the language there. This is a present reality. It applies to us now. It applies to us today. And so the question that verse 13 compels us to ask is, do you have a verse 13 type of moment in your life? Right? Or are you still hanging out in verses 11 and 12? This is a... Dangerous possibility for us to know about sin, for us to know about being outside, for us to know about being a stranger and being an alien, to not be invited in, but never come to the point of calling out to God to save us. Not having verse 13 written over our lives, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. I'm not asking so much if you can give me like the, the day, the hour, the minute. You may be like me, and it may be written on the inside of one of your Bibles from days gone by. August 19th, 1990. Like, it's written. It's just in my mind, and it's written. I can pull out the old gray. I don't remember what kind of Bible it was, but the old gray Bible that's written there. That may be your experience. Your experience may be like, I don't know exactly when the day was. But I know that verse 13 is written over my life. Is this true for you? And so Paul switches here in verse 13 to New Covenant theology, New Covenant language. You are far off, but you've been brought near, and you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. So consider where you were in verse 13. Where you were, you were far off. Consider where you are now in verse 13. You were far off, but where you are now, you've been brought near. Right? You've been brought near. There's a proximity that happens for the Christian where he brings us from being way out there right up into his presence, right? You were brought near, and how did God do it? Verse 13, he brought us near by the blood of Christ. And so for the true Christian, the blood is actually beautiful. We read about the blood. We sing about the blood. We rejoice in the sufficiency of the blood. And to an unredeemed, unregenerate, rot watching world, rotten, yes, watching world, like, it seems a little bit odd that there's this group of people and when they start singing about the blood, it seems like they kick it up a notch. 
But for those who are redeemed, we see and we know and we embrace and we rejoice in the value of the blood of Christ. Romans 3, we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation, a payment by His blood to be received by faith. We need to realize what God has done for us in Christ. And so we have all these New Testament realities that point to the efficiency and the sufficiency of the blood. Perfectly capable to accomplish the will of God for the Christian. Hold your finger here in Ephesians 2 and turn to Hebrews chapter 9. Let's consider what Hebrews 9 teaches us about the sacrifice of Christ, the blood of Christ. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 11. Hebrews 9.11, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, He entered once for all into the holy of places, not by the means of blood of goats and calves, but by the means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So just to clarify what's going on here, the writer of Hebrews has been painting a picture, and especially here is painting a, a picture to help the readers and help us understand that all of the Old Testament sacrifices in which blood was a significant portion of are fulfilled in Christ. And all of the Old Testament sacrifices on the Day of Atonement or the situational sacrifices all had to be repeated over and over and over and over and over. And so the writer of Hebrews is coming and he's saying he entered once for all into the holy place where these sacrifices were made, symbolic of the presence of God, not by the means of blood of goats and calves. This high priest, Jesus, did not need to go in with blood with him. If I was a high priest, I had to have the blood of a goat, a cat, some animal to go in and offer before God. Jesus didn't need that blood because why? He's bringing his own blood into the sacrifice. Securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctified for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator. He is the go-between. 1 Timothy 2.5. One mediator between God and man of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Christ's sacrifice, here Hebrews teaches us, Christ's sacrifice is voluntary. He willfully gave himself. Christ's sacrifice is complete, verse 12. He is both the high priest and he's the sacrifice. Complete. Christ's sacrifice is eternal, securing eternal redemption. Christ's sacrifice is life. His sacrifice is sufficient for redemption. Verse 15. And looking back at the language of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Brother, sister, you are redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus. We need to realize again and again, what God has done for us in Christ. You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Look at your text at verse 13, Ephesians 2, 13. And for a moment, in relative silence, ponder the language of verse 13. So we had a pause button in the preaching here. And take a second and ponder the reality of verse 13. 
but now in Christ Jesus. You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We need to realize, church, what God has done for us in Christ. And so we need to remember who we were before Christ. Secondly, we need to realize what God has done for us in Christ. And then number three, we need to remind ourselves who we are in Christ. We need to remind ourselves who we are in Christ. This is where constantly preaching the gospel to ourselves and constantly preaching the gospel to one another becomes of great value. Verses 14 through 22, Paul is reminding the church of who they are in Christ. So first we see in verses 14 through 16, we're no longer enemies, we are friends. Look at verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. Christ removed the hostility that was between us and God. He broke down the dividing wall of hostility. He abolished the law of commandments, verse 15, by fulfilling all of the commandments perfectly. And then verse 16, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the Christ, thereby killing the hostility. It's, it's militant language there in verses 14, 15, and 16. Like this, this idea of dividing wall, hostility, and Christ busted through all of this hostility between us and God by the sacrifice of his blood, and now we are no longer enemies. We are friends. We are friends with God through Christ and in Christ. And so we're no longer enemies, but we are friends. Also, we are no longer without access. We are actually now given free access. Look at verses 17 and 18. And he came and preached to you who are far off. Those are the Gentiles and peace to those who were near the Jews. Verse 18, for through him, we both Jews and Gentiles have access in one spirit to the father. Teaches us all kind of realities. One, there's no second class Christianity, right? There's no elite group. There's no, we're going to be on a plane for a long time in about a week. And there's always this thought when you pass, we don't sit in first class, all right? We're with the commoners, all right? But there's always this thought, like when you're passing by the first class group, especially on those big planes, the overseas, you know, 8, 10, 12 hour flights, and they're like in this bubble, don't even look at me kind of reality, that there's, there's, there's a clear delineation between us and them, <laughs> Right? I was on, I was on a, a smaller plane, and there was a, like a first class I didn't realize existed, I guess, because there was no curtain, there was like no dividing wall. But like they started handing out these, uh, they came around with a box, and it had like candy bars, granola bars, fruit. Man, I think it was JetBlue maybe. And I'm thinking, man, this is pretty nice. I'm about to fly JetBlue more often. And so the la- there was a guy, the, the guy's walking through, you know, giving stuff out, and he gets right up to my row, and he turns around and goes back. I'm like, that's where the wall is. That's where the dividing wall is. That's where the commoners begin, right? That's where I sit. That's not the case in Christianity. That's not the case in God's economy. There is no division. There is no elite status. We're just brothers and sisters redeemed by the blood of Christ, which puts us all on level playing field. We all bring sin to the equation. Different implications different ramifications consequences of those sins yes but we all bring the common reality of sin and it's the blood of christ that redeems us and so we are no longer without access we're given free access there was a literal wall in the temple in the old testament there's the gen- the wall of the gentiles and there was an inscription over the wall of the gentiles like as you if you're going to walk through this door that said something to the effect of hey if you're a gentile and you walk through here then your blood is on your own head 
because you could very well die. And so there was limited access for the Gentile to walk past this wall in the temple. And then even for the common Jew, they could walk through that door. They could walk through that access way and get into the court of the Jews. But then there's limited access again that was reserved for the high priest one time a year to go into. And so there's all these limited accesses in access points in the temple. And Paul is saying here, that's not the case anymore because Jesus is the high priest and the sacrifice. He's obliterated the walls the dividing walls are gone christ took care of all the division he has brought us near verse 13 and so also we are no longer strangers and aliens we are citizens saints and family members look at verse 19 so then you are no longer strangers and aliens but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of god we're no longer outsiders but we're counted among the number We are fellow citizens and saints with the household of God. We are family members together. Brother, sister, if you're in Christ, you're not a stranger. You're not an outsider. You're a citizen. You're a saint. You're a member of the household of God. Also, we are no longer chasing after our own gods and pursuing the pride of life, erecting our own temples to ourselves. But now we are actually the dwelling place of the Most High God. Look at verse 20. We're fellow citizens, saints, members, household of of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So we're seeing building language here. And whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We're being joined together. We're being built together. And this truth, this reality that we're being built together into God's dwelling place should cause us to be diligent in remembering, in realizing, in reminding of all God has done in Christ. So who is the best church member? The best church member is a redeemed church member who remembers who they were before Christ, realizes what God has done for them in Christ, and is reminded of who they are in Christ. It's all about Christ. It's all about Christ. It is all Him. A statement from a while ago. We had nothing before Christ, and in Christ, we have nothing but Christ. Which is good for us, because He is, abs- he is absolutely sufficient. Absolutely sufficient. Application to the church. All of this language here is plural. Paul uses the pronoun you, seven times in these verses. It's all plural. It's all plural. So he's speaking to the collective gathering at the church at Ephesus, which, like, we get how that hits us, right? This is not individualism. This is not isolation. But this is biblical community where we constantly remember together who we are, who we were before Christ. And even in sharing our stories, we remember who we were before Christ. We realize together what God has done for us in Christ, individually and collectively. We preach the gospel to ourselves. We preach the gospel to one another. And we remind ourselves and we remind one another of who we are in Christ. And we remind one another, this really is all about Jesus. It really is all about Jesus. And so the more important question in light of the teaching series from the past few weeks, 
The more important question than are you a member of Redeemer is, are you redeemed? Are you redeemed? Far be it from us to accept men and women into church membership who don't know Christ. Who don't know Christ. And so we hold to texts like Ephesians 2, 11 through 22 to help us to realize all that God has done for us in Christ. And so concluding question is centered around verse 13. But now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Is verse 13 true for your life? Have you repented of your sin and placed faith in Christ? Are you redeemed? Or, quite possibly, are you simply religious? Going through motions, checking off lists, doing those things without any reality of the blood of Christ impacting your life. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And brother and sister, just, just stop for a minute and think about who you were before Jesus saved you. Just think about that pit that Psalms reminds us of, that he pulls us out of. You had no hope of getting out of that situation. In fact, like me, you may have kept trying and trying to remediate that situation on your own. Constantly leaving yourself hopeless. Remember who you were before Christ. Brother, sister, stop for a moment and realize all that God has done for you in Christ. You've been brought near by the blood of Jesus. The most precious reality we can even fathom. This truth that we'll celebrate in just a couple weeks on Good Friday, commemorating this sacrificial, atoning death of Christ. That's ours. That's ours. We have to realize who we are in Christ. We have to realize what God has done for us. We've been brought near by the blood of Christ. And then also we have to be reminded of who we are in Christ. And you're not an outsider. In God's economy and God's kingdom, there are no outsiders. The only outsiders are those who are unregenerate, who do not know Christ. You've been brought near. And so all the truths of Ephesians 2, verses 14 through 22, are true for you, if you know Christ. If verse 13 is written over your life, then verses 14 through 22 apply, without a doubt. And so we live that way, and we worship that way, and we do church that way. Let's pray, and we'll sing. Lord Jesus, thank you for accomplishing everything necessary for us to be made right with the Father. We rejoice in the truth that we were once objects of wrath, but now we are objects of mercy. Our confession has to be that in our sin we were without hope in this world. We were dependent on the winds of life pushing us here and there. We were in bondage to sin. We were absolutely depraved. And by the perfect work of Christ, 
We've been made new. Father, by the presence of the Holy Spirit within us, by the truth of your word, help us to actually live these realities out, individually and collectively. Well, we trust when doubt, discouragement, worry, anxiety, all these vices come our way, that your word will remind us of who we are now in Christ. And that we will walk in the constant reality of all that has been done for us by Christ. Lord, we love you. And our loving you is only possible because you first loved us. Lord, thank you that it is by grace that we are saved through faith. And it's not of any works or anything else we bring to the table. But it is simply your gift. So far be it from us that we would boast. Thank you for making us your workmanship. Creating these good works for us to walk in. So by your grace and for your glory, help us to do that. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.